You're listening to the Sunday Session Podcast with Francesca Rudkin from Newstalk ZB. Right now, as a lover of art, films and music, I have at times been faced with a moral dilemma. What do I do if the artist I love the work of isn't such a great person or indeed could be an outright monster? Can we and should we separate an artist's work from their indiscretions in personal life? Author Claire Ditterer has explored this in her new book. It's called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma and joins me now. Hi Claire, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me, what got you thinking about this issue as a subject for a book? Was there an artist in particular that had you questioning your relationship with them and their work? Yeah, I started thinking about this quite a few years ago, actually, in about 2014. I was working on a previous book, another uh, book about that was dealing with growing up in the 1970s and 80s. And I was writing about some of the kind of uh, rotten things that happened to me as a girl growing up in an era that was sexually predatory. And because the subject matter was sort of a downer, um, beyond sort of, I, I started to use different experimental forms to approach the subject matter. So like some of the book is written in the form of lists, or it might be written as uh, there's a map in the book. And one of the chapters was an open letter to Roman Polanski. Now, the book was a memoir, but of course, I didn't know. And of course, I didn't know Polanski. He's not someone who was part of my life. But I took him as a kind of, uh, I took him to stand in for predatory men of that era because of his rape of a young girl in 19 and I think 1978 or nine um, she was 13 year, years old and he raped her uh, so I became really interested in his crime and I researched it really deeply uh, but at the same time I was still a big fan of his work I had been a film critic and I had st- you know done film studies at university And once I finished writing about his crime and thinking about him, you know, for this open letter I was writing for him in my book, I sort of knew all there was to know. I'd studied, you know, I'd studied the girl's deposition. He was, in fact, uh, convicted and fled to France, where he still lives. I, I read up on a lot of history of the crime. And yet, even after all that, I still found I could watch his films, which was a surprise. Well, I think it's a dilemma that we're dealing with a lot, even more these days. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, obviously, this is something that is not an entirely new problem. I think as long as there have been artists and there have been audiences, I think audiences have been made uncomfortable by rotten things that that artists have done. Uh, But I think what's different now is that we live in this moment where we're really, really exposed to biography. We sort of can't escape it. The internet is made out of biography. You know, our biographies on social media, the biographies of other people that we consume. And even if we don't want to know the terrible things that these people have done, we sort of can't avoid it. So this problem Mm. comes up in a sort of uh, unavoidable way. Are our responses to a piece of art dependent on our experiences as well? Can we be objective? Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that's exactly how this works. I think when when I first started thinking about this, I heard a lot of um, especially men telling me that I should separate the art from the artist. And, you know, I thought, well, that's fine, but I can't. You know, it's, it's sort of something that can't be done as an act of will. 
And my own experience of thinking about the terrible things that some of these artists had done and my own response to those things was often shaped by my own experience. So, you know, my experiences as a survivor of of sexual assault and my experiences as a mother of a young girl certainly shape my viewing of, for instance, Woody Allen's Manhattan, a film in which he, as a 40-something man, has a relationship with a 17-year-old girl. You know, that's a different experience of that film than maybe somebody who is also a man and is, is Allen's contemporary might have. I was intrigued as, you know, as you've been going researching this book and thinking about it, whether women and men see this issue differently. A slightly different take. I've got two children. I've got a 16-year-old son who said to me that he can absolutely, you know, he will continue to listen to Kanye West's music, but he can, you know, he can separate the artist uh, from uh, their work. And, you know, he he understands the issues, but he can still listen to that music. And I've got a 14-year-old daughter who says to me, who quite honestly says, they take a step wrong. They're gone. They're, they're dead to me. I want, you know, like, like it's kind of there's two quite different um, sort of perspectives on how to deal with a situation like this. Did you notice, sort of, you know, as you were researching this book, that men and women see the issue differently? Yeah, I'm. I'm still sort of reflecting on your your two children and their responses. I think that men and women do see these things differently, and I think that sometimes if we if we look at it from the point of view of decisions people are making. I think that that can be a little bit misleading. I think that often what happens is people just have feelings. Audience members have feelings about what they learn about an artist. And that's what guides them in their in their sort of maybe intuitive shutting down of the work. Um, and that's fine. I think that we if we can acknowledge that feelings are part of this picture. I think too often we think that audiences come to this work sort of as these hyper-rational decision makers. But so often we are guided by these kind of moral feelings. And if we can acknowledge that and talk about it, I think that's a, that's a much um, more useful place to stand. I'm also interested in the slight age difference, just as an aside, the slight age difference between your two children. Because I do think that there's almost, when it comes to this stuff, there's almost micro-generations. I notice differences between my two kids who are three years apart in age. And I think that, you know, sort of the younger you go, <laughs> the more um, more stern the young can be about this. And I, and I, when I was reading your book, you talk about how often, you know, uh, the audience may feel betrayed by an artist. And, and that's what I kind of almost felt that my daughter was experiencing, that we can feel betrayed by an artist um, and the reveal of a of morally questionable decisions that they've made. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting to think about teenagers. I know that's not what our whole conversation yeah. is about. It's really interesting to me to think about teenagers vis-a-vis -vis this problem, because really, I think in many ways, it's a problem, you know, it's a question about heartbreak. It's a topic that has a lot of heartbreak in it. You have an artist whose work you love, you fall in love with, and then you do feel betrayed. And the question then is what happens next? Do you continue, like your son, to sort of lo love this artist even after everything, or do you cast them out? And I think so often when we talk about this problem, we become really focused on the crime. 
right? We really become focused on what it is, the bad thing the person has done. And I think that that's really important to say, you know, I think when somebody sort of, when an, when an accuser raises their hand and says, this person did something to me, I think we become a better culture when we listen to that. Mm. But I also think as audience members, it's important to acknowledge there is another part of this um, calculus. And that part is love of the work. And it's really easy for love of the work to be lost in this dialogue because the pointing and the, the you know, sort of accusing can be so definite and so strong and so righteous. But love of the work is really important, too. What the work is giving you is really important. You know, people, I think it's not too melodramatic to say that that art can be a, a life-saving force. So it's okay to also continue loving the work. It's not necessarily your problem as an audience member to sort of integrate all this information and come up with a grand unified theory of what to do. You can know the, you know, know the information, have feelings about the bad act, but you can also privilege and give importance to your love of the work. Should we be more empathetic then? Should we be prepared to embrace redemption more? That's such a great question and one I struggle with in my book. Um, I think that the idea of redemption and the idea of empathy, those were things I came to late in this process. As I said, I began thinking about this book in 2014, and I really began writing in earnest in 2016, which was a big year for us in America when Donald Trump was elected. And early on, I think my perspective was much more of a kind of uh, punitive, finger-pointing kind of feminism, a feminism that was about casting out the wrongdoer. But of course, a lot has happened since 2016 and 2017. We've all, you know, certainly in America, we've undergone a major political education and been forced to think about things more system systemically. And I think that as I started to think about the forces at work, both in the entertainment industry, but on audience members, I became more interested in the idea that we're all part of this kind of bigger system, this capitalist system that we're laboring under. And maybe in that context, if I think about it systemically, I can have more room for empathy and more hope for the redemption of the wrong wrongdoers. Is genius an excuse for bad behavior? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've all so, done that, haven't we? Yeah, I've certainly, you know, thought, certainly even with Polanski, I, I sort of, you know, my first impulse was to say, well, He's a genius, so we're just not going to worry about the crime. And I think that genius is such a fascinating idea, and one I write about at, at great length in the book. Um, I think that genius is almost a status. It's a it's a a genius as a person who gets to do whatever they want. And in the book, I read about Picasso and Ernest Hemingway, and I talk about them as examples of geniuses. But in fact, they're more than examples. They are people who helped create the contemporary or mm. the 20th century ideal of the genius. They were the great painter and the great writer of the beginning of the mass media era. And they were, aside from being truly great artists, both of them, they were also very, very smart about using the tools and the levers of media to put forward their own image. And that image was you know, violent, brawling, misogynist, hurtful, anti-child, um, and above all, free. And the image they give of the genius is someone who's 
completely free. He's sort of the servant of his artistic impulses and the servant of the rest of his impulses as well. And so those ideas, that idea of a male who is kind of absolutely free, kind of becomes the idea of the genius. And who does that serve? It serves the, you know, the male artist who gets to do what he wants. As consumers, do we hold sway? Does boycotting an artist's work make any difference? Uh, and I suppose the other thing I'm curious about is it does the way we consume art make you a bad person or a good person? Yeah, I think that, you know, for some people, this is going to be the way they sort of grab the horns of this dilemma. They're mm-hmm. going to decide that they can't stomach the idea of putting money into the pockets of whoever the wrongdoer might be, right? They they picture paying for, you know, streaming a Polanski film and imagine that money going to Polanski. Um, and for them, that's not an acceptable uh, exchange. And that is a good solution to the discomfort is to simply not spend the money. I don't think that boycotts, we're certainly seeing that boycotts haven't really worked. But more than that, I think they sort of bypass a fuller and more interesting conversation. I think it's fascinating that sort of in this capitalist uh, system in which we live, when we have somebody accuse an artist of wrongdoing, you know, somebody hold up their hand and say, this person did something to me. There's this sort of leap over all possible responses to the response of the audience member, right? All of a sudden, it's the audience member's responsibility to choose, to decide what they're going to do about this person. And that deciding basically reinforces the audience member's role as a consumer. That's who you get to be. That's your response to this problem is how you're going to consume their work. But there's all kinds of other approaches to this problem that have to do with the industry, that have to do with sexism, that have Mm. to do with all kinds of larger structures that we can be talking about before we leap over all those questions and put it on this one tiny atomized individual and say, now this is your problem. And that's what capitalism does. It ignores ethical dilemmas until it comes to a crisis point and then it hands it to the consumer. And that's not necessarily the right way to approach this. Thank you so much for your time today, Claire, and for the book, because I I think we've all at times battled with this dilemma. And uh, I found it so thought-provoking, and I feel a lot more at rest with where I've got to, with how I feel about some artists and their work. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really nice talking. That was Claire Dederer. Her book is called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, and it is available now. For more from the Sunday session with Francesca Rudkin, listen live to News Talk ZB from 9am Sunday or follow the podcast on iHeartRadio.